This is my son, Caleb. He's 10 years old today. This means that Caleb's going to be coming to a lot more things with me. So this is a disclaimer. If he appears at our meeting together and you thought it was just going to be the two of us, don't be surprised. You've got to bring him along and train him up. Amen? Amen. I love you, son. Happy birthday. You did it. You made it. You survived the holidays. In keeping with that theme, today we're talking about the exiles returning home. That was kind of a joke. Maybe not good for an opener. But it was right off the top of my head. We're starting a new series today. Actually, I want to start off with this. Last week, when everybody gave so generously... It eliminated all the debt that we had. We have no fear that when we talk about how generous this body is, that it will cause anybody to go, okay, sweet. So then we're done. Like it's, it's over. The, the generosity, it's over, right? We did it. We accomplished our goal. It's an ongoing thing. What I'm saying is everyone's doing a great job. You guys are doing a fantastic job. You're generous. You're loving. So thank you. And praise the Lord for what he's doing through you guys. Last year we doubled what we give to other ministries. So we increased our giving to other ministries. And I want to reiterate again. If you need anything, come and talk to us. If you are hurting in any way, come and talk to us. And we will come alongside you. We won't take a wad of cash every time and throw it at your face. Sometimes money is what's needed. Sometimes it's counsel and direction and for us just to come alongside you. Either way, we're in this together. So if you need help, come and talk to us. Amen? Good. 2018, in the books. It went fast, didn't it? That was a fast year. Time is speeding up. Today we're going to talk about trauma. Trauma is defined as a deeply distressing or disturbing experience. Specifically as it relates to trauma, we're going to talk about being paralyzed by the pain of the past. We're starting a new series today on Nehemiah. So we're going to go through Nehemiah over the next coming months. And if we feel that we're losing everybody, we'll break and we'll do a one-off on something else. But if we can stick it out, we're going to finish through all the way through the book of Nehemiah. Okay? How many of y'all came in today with walls up? It's okay. You can admit it. One. Sweet. This is going to be so easy. Maybe two. How many of you would say, I probably have walls up. I just don't know what they are. Okay, that's fair. That's fair. When I look at my son today, I can tell you some of the things that would be traumatic that have happened in his life. Because I was there for him and I know what's happened in his life. I can tell you some of the things that 
he might not recognize as traumatic. Sometimes we don't recognize trauma as it's happening or unfolding. Sometimes we look back on situations and we see, oh my goodness, I didn't realize it at the time, but that was an incredibly traumatic experience. Sometimes it takes someone else saying, that, that was traumatic, what happened to you? And you're like, it, it was? I, I guess I never thought of that. How many of you guys have seen the movie Captain Phillips? Did y'all see that movie with Tom Hanks? So at the end, he's, he's experiencing post-traumatic stress disorder. Y'all ever heard that term? Post-traumatic stress disorder. As we enter into the series on Nehemiah, today we're going to set context. I love to set context. It's very narrative heavy, and I love narrative. So we're going to start back with Josiah. You wouldn't think Josiah would be related or connected directly with the story of Nehemiah, but he is. Josiah becomes king at the age of eight. That is two years younger than Caleb. Stand up again, Caleb. That's two years younger than this man, king of Judah. Okay? Very good guy. As he grows up, he finds the book of the law while cleaning out the temple. He reads it and he reforms the nation and renews the covenant with God. This is in 609 B.C., he marches out to Har Megiddo. You guys ever heard of Armageddon? Har Megiddo. That's where it comes from. <clears throat> so he marches out to try and stop Pharaoh from marching through the Lord's land to get to another battle. Pharaoh was on his way to unite with Assyria to try and stop the rising Babylonians and simply had to pass through. So Josiah went out to fight him in Har Megiddo and he was defeated. So what we're going to show is Judah was here in power. Okay? We're going to show Judah decreasing in power. And the Egyptians have something to do with that, the decrease in power. But then the rise of power by the Babylonians. So Judah decreases in power and Babylon rises in power. So we're setting the stage for this right now. This is what I'm describing. So Josiah goes out, gets defeated by the Egyptians. Over the course of the next two decades, the people of Judah would receive four kings who were evil in a row. That may not sound significant, but up until this point, there's never been four kings who were evil in a row in Judah. There were in Israel, but never in Judah. Four kings in a row. It's significant. So someone from Judah had always risen to do good and lead the people in repentance and return to the Lord by the third king, but not this time. So after jo Josiah, Jehoahaz became king of Judah. Pharaoh displayed his power over the people of Judah by putting Jehoahaz in chains and replacing him with king, with the king Eliakim. So he took their king and to show his power over them, he took out their king and then replaced him with another king to show how powerful he was. Imagine if another nation did that to us. Here's your president. I'm removing your president. This is now your president. That would be very demoralizing, wouldn't it? You would think, what's going on? We're not in control. We're not the ones in power here, which is the point of it. So while Jehoiakim was king, Babylon invaded Jerusalem. So he changed Eliakim's name to Jehoiakim, okay? So now we're on the, the second king. So the king became his vassal. That's someone who is loyal and subordinate as long as they get to... So in exchange for their loyalty and their subordination, they remain king over a land or leader over a land. That's a vassal, 
So that's someone who is, uh, so he was allowed to stay there and be king because he was loyal. So Babylon had grown tremendously in power. And as Babylon was growing in power, they were taking Pharaoh's land. So Egypt was decreasing in power. Judah was decreasing in power. And Babylon is rising to be a world power. So Pharaoh lost his land. Jehoiakim decided he didn't want to be loyal to Babylon any longer and was defeated when he rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. So Jehoiachin becomes the new king. Sounds the same, but stick with me through these names. Jehoiachin became king and reigned for three months. Nebuchadnezzar had had enough of the troubles from Jerusalem at this point. So let's pick up in 2 Kings 24. Let's go there together. This is a story about our family. That's what we're hearing. We're reading about the history of our family and how we got to where we are. This is part of the story of the family that we've been grafted into. Second Kings 24, we'll start in verse 12, part B. In the eighth year of the reign of the king of Babylon, he took Jehoiachin prisoner. As the Lord had declared, Nebuchadnezzar removed all the treasures from the temple of the Lord. Now remember this, treasures to us, what are, what are the treasures in here? Maybe this keyboard, that drum set, maybe Adam's guitar. Some of the, we don't have treasures in here, the projector. If people came in and stole our stuff, they would steal like an old computer and some used instruments, Right? It wouldn't be great because we'd be out a few thousand dollars, but I don't think we'd meet our insurance deductible, okay, from the things that anyone would want to steal in this place. We don't have treasures in here. They had treasures in their temple. Someone coming and taking their treasures would be the equivalent of maybe a cherished family heirloom that had passed down from many generations that was priceless. If someone came along and offered you hundreds of thousands of dollars, you wouldn't take it. It's hard to imagine nowadays because we've exchanged everything for the love of money in many cases. But imagine if there was something so priceless, you wouldn't take any money for it, right? And then they came and, and they plundered the possessions that were in the temple. This is a devastating blow to the people. And from the royal palace, and they took away all the gold articles that Solomon, king of Israel, had made for the temple of the Lord. He carried into exile all Jerusalem, all the officers and the fighting men. So let me say that again. He carried the officers and the fighting men and all the craftsmen, craftsmen and artisans, a total of 10,000. Only the poorest people of the land were left. Nebuchadnezzar took Jehoiachin captive. Uh, we'll stop right there. So he comes and he takes the leaders. Do you see this? So now we have another country of foreign power has taken and removed the leader and put in their own leader, changed his name just to spite you. Comes and takes all the treasured possessions, the things that you value the most. Then comes and takes the officials, the leaders, the craftsmen and the artisans, which were more important even to them in those days. Because if you wanted anything, you had to have someone make it. You didn't just go to Target and buy a shirt, right? You didn't just go to Home Depot and get a decoration for your house. Someone that you knew made it, okay? So the things that they came and took were treasured possessions. And then they came and took the leaders. So 
So from here, Zedekiah becomes king. So he's the final king over Judah. As his people are under siege for 18 months and are starving to death. People eating their own children kind of starving. The army of Judah broke through the walls to flee from the Babylonian army. So you're looking around and after your leaders have been taken, your officials, after the strong men of the army have been taken, after all the craftsmen and the artisans were taken, after all the treasured possessions were taken, your kings have been uprooted and replaced, their names changed. And now your army flees through the walls. The people who were there to defend you run away. And you've been sitting in that place in your own filth without food or water and people eating their own children. Can you see trauma developing here? A traumatic situation. Can you see that? They're experiencing pain and trauma, stress. Do you see that? Zedekiah also fled their king, not just their army. Their king fled and took his 70 sons with him. But Nebuchadnezzar caught up to them all. 70 sons. <laughs> you can say that again. And he was only 31 years old. So they took Zedekiah's sons, lined them up in front of him and killed them all. And then they put out Zedekiah's eyes. So that the last thing that he saw was his sons dying in front of his face. Trauma. Pain. Stress. Pressure. A breaking. Let's go to 2 Chronicles 36. We're going to read how the Bible describes the fall. So by the way, in our Bibles, the last book is Malachi. But for the Jews, the last book is Chronicles. And so the way that things end right here is the way that their Hebrew scriptures end in their 24 books that they have. So let's start reading in verse 15. My subtitle says the fall of Jerusalem. Does y'all have something like that? The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians who killed their young men with the sword in the sanctuary and spared neither young man nor young woman, old man or aged. Why do you think it says they killed them with the sword in the sanctuary? They were running there for fear to be protected. But there was no place that anyone could hide. The young men, that's supposed to, to bring to mind the idea of the strongest among them, the ones who are supposed to be the most brave and bold, were hiding in a place for fear. And they were struck down inside the sanctuary. Trauma. Trauma. 
God handed all of them over to Nebuchadnezzar. He carried to Babylon all the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and his officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down all the walls of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. Trauma. Burned down the temples and the homes, busted down the walls. Did I put in there a picture of the captives being led away? Can you see that at all? There's this picture that an artist did that I feel is, uh, is it not on there? That's okay. It's literally a train of the people. You know how we, we see the, the, the picture of the Exodus and we see the people walking through the Red Sea and we see the people being led? It's similar to that, but they're walking away and you can see a city in the background and there's flames up to the sky. So now on top of everything else, on top of other foreign powers treating their kings and their leaders like puppets, taking all their treasured possessions, changing their names, burning down their temple, slaying the old, the young men, women, and children, taking away their officials, the leaders, taking away their soldiers, their army fleeing through the walls after they've been starved to death for 18 months, their king running away, his sons being killed before him and then his eyes being put out. Now they're all being led in chains away from their city as they watch it burn to the ground by people who speak a different language than them who are giving them orders on where they're going to go. Trauma. Everything they know about home Everything concerning their identity, everything that was valuable to them, that was safe, secure, destroyed. On top of this, well, before we go there, there are psalms that are written from people who are in exile. Sometimes when we read the psalms, we don't know the background of why someone's writing what they're writing. We just read it. But there are psalms that are written by people who are in exile. So I read through all of them and I pulled some of the, the things that I thought expressed the brokenheartedness that they were feeling. Psalm 44, we have heard about the battles you won on our father's behalf, not by their strength, but by your love. But now you have rejected us. You gave up on us. You sold us. We are a mockery, disgraced and shamed. Why do you hide your face? Help us. Psalm 44. Psalm 74. Why have you rejected us? Remember us. Your enemies roared in the place where you met with us. They burned every place where you were worshipped in the land. Do not forget your people forever. Rise up, O God, and defend your cause. Psalm 79. They have invaded your inheritance, defiled your holy temple, and reduced Jerusalem to rubble. Your servants and saints' dead bodies are food for the birds. Their blood is poured out like water all around Jerusalem. There is no one to bury the dead. Psalm 89. You have rejected you have spurned. You have been very angry with your anointed one. You have renounced the covenant with your servant and have defiled his crown in the dust. You have broken through all his walls and reduced his strongholds to ruin. You have not supported him in battle. How long, O oh Lord, will you hide yourself forever? 
How long, O Lord, will you hide yourself forever? Do you hear the heartbreak in these people? A deeply distressing or disturbing experience. Trauma. One of the phrases that we might miss is where he says, you have renounced the covenant with your servant and have defiled his crown in the dust. In 1 Kings 9.5 and Jeremiah 33.17, we see a covenant with the people that David will always have a descendant sitting on the throne. There's a covenant made with God's people that David would always have a descendant sitting on the throne. Nebuchadnezzar found out about this prophecy. And even though through 21 kings and nearly 400 years that had proven true, David had always had a descendant on the throne. After Nebuchadnezzar heard about this, he purposefully installed someone not from the line of David on the throne named Gedaliah. He put this person over Judah. And so now what the people saw was even God's covenant has been broken with us. Up until now, we at least always had this. And now even that was taken away. That's why you see language. Why have you sold us? Why have you rejected us? The crown that was supposed to be a symbol of our covenant with you is now in the dust. You rejected the covenant. You broke your promise. Trauma. Stress is, is described as a state of mental or emotional strain or tension resulting from adverse or very demanding circumstances. The Bible describes Job's situation for us, not so that we would say, well, what, what do I have to complain about? But rather to show us in the midst of suffering, what is true? In the midst of trauma, what is constant? And at the end, when God finally answers Job back after all of his questions, does he give him answers for why everything happened? His response back to him is, who are you to question me? When we're going through trauma, when we're going through stress, when we're going through pain, we often want answers to be able to frame what we're going through. We also want a timeline. How long is this pain going to last? How long will this take? How much will this hurt? Can you relate it to something else? What about other people who have gone through stressful situations like this? How did they deal with it? What medicine can I take? What counselor can I go see? What can I do to help ease the pain of this trauma? The people of Judah were no different. They were hurting. But they were asking the Lord, how long is this going to last? How much longer are you going to do this to us? Let's go to Nehemiah 1. Nehemiah 
in verses 1 through 3. It says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the twentieth year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. So where's Nehemiah living during this time? In Babylon. So we see that everything has been moved around, everything has been transferred. We see that he's still, I should take that back. Am I right about that? Am I wrong about that? Living in Babylon. He's cupbearer to the king. Babylon has been overthrown. Cyrus is now, bring up the timeline. It's tough. Okay, so y'all see in 586 BC, the exiles were deported. So now some people will say it was 586, some people will say 598, some people will say 608. It just depends on where you're looking. What we know is that the prophecy was that it would be 70 years long. So 586 BC, the exiles were deported because the, depo the deportation took place in three different waves, okay? In 538 BC, Cyrus decrees the end of the exile. In 516 BC, the temple is rebuilt. And in 445 BC is when Nehemiah heads back to this place. So Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah picks up in 445. 538 is when the decree was issued by Cyrus that said the exile is over. Let the people go back home. But many of the people stayed where they were and they continued to live there. I do think it was Babylon. I could be mistaken. Let us get back to you next week. Either way, here he is. He's in the citadel of Susa, if someone wants to Google that. So they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. So now when we think about all the trauma that we just described, and we think about all the destruction that we just listed, and we hear that, hey, at least the decree was issued. We know that Zerubbabel goes back, that Ezra goes back, and they rebuild the temple. They institute the Torah again. They start building the community. These, these things are all happening in between what we just read and Nehemiah. Okay? But Nehemiah hears that the walls are still broken down and that the people are still disgraced. There's still disorder. There's still chaos back there in the city. Why is this a big deal? Because it's been over 90 years since everything happened. And the people still haven't rebuilt everything. They've become okay with the rubble and the disorder and the chaos around them. Can you understand why they might still be paralyzed? by the pain of what happened in the past? Can you understand why they might not have moved past the trauma that they experienced? We can understand, we can sympathize with these guys and the pain that they're going through as we read through these things, or we can at least attempt to sympathize and we can say, yeah, I can see why you guys wouldn't necessarily get back to building that wall. Why you guys wouldn't organize everything and get back to the city the way that it used to be. I can understand that. The problem was is that when Nehemiah heard it, how it was described to him is that the people are disgraced and there is shame because they haven't rebuilt the walls. 
So while we might look at it from one perspective and say, listen, I can understand why you're paralyzed by the pain of what happened to you in the past. But when Nehemiah hears it, he says, wait a second, this is disgraceful. This is shameful. Even though what happened was traumatic, the decree has been issued and we have got to take back what was broken. What happened was traumatic. What happened was painful and there is no denying that. But when Nehemiah hears it, he says, we have got to rebuild. We have got to take back what was broken and we can't wait not even one more day. I want you to take a look at something. If disorder is a state of confusion, if trauma has created stress and disorder in your life, and here you are in the aftermath, let me say this one more time. Trauma has created stress and disorder in your life. And now here you are in the aftermath of it. Right here today. You're sitting here today. And you've experienced trauma. Let me repeat the definition one more time. A deeply distressing or disturbing experience. What's your trauma? What trauma have you experienced? What have you been through? How were you hurt by the church? Did they bring you up to pray for you in tongues? And you faked it and you were hurt or you were in pain? Did you reach out to leaders in the church and they never responded back to you and so you felt alone? No one helped you in the church? What trauma did you experience? Were you molested when you were little? Did you experience abuse, verbal or physical abuse? Have you gone through divorce? Has there been other terrible things that have happened in your family, with your children? Maybe you were in jail, prison. Maybe you've committed crimes that no one else even knows about. Whatever it might be, what trauma have you experienced? Trauma. Because here we are in the aftermath, post-traumatic stress and disorder. Does that mark your life? Stress and disorder. In a moment of honesty right now, if you would say that, yes, stress and disorder are a big part of my life, raise your hand right now, right now. Don't worry about where we're at in the service. Just raise your hand right now. I'm gonna give it five more seconds. Leave your hand up. If you know that that marks you, stress and disorder mark my life. Good, you can put your hand down. Are you like Jerusalem and your walls have been broken down and they stand in disrepair and you keep looking back to the trauma and the pain and that's why you're paralyzed to rebuild and to take back what was broken? We're not just talking about letting go of what happened in the past. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not sitting here today or t standing here today and telling you, let go of what's happened in the past. What I'm saying is, if you don't yet have all the answers for that, on a side note, are you paralyzed from its pain? 
Have you been rendered useless in the kingdom because you are sitting and not moving? Would you say that you have grown in the Lord? Or would you say that you've been stuck for some years now? You've been stuck for some time now. You wish that it weren't that way, but it is. When you look back, do you have a reason why you're stuck? Do you have a reason why you're paralyzed? We're not even saying that the reasons aren't valid. Were their reasons valid for being traumatized from what happened? Absolutely. Valid reasons for being traumatized. And yet Nehemiah's response still calls out to us today. We have to go back and rebuild and repair what was broken and lost. There is work to do. We cannot be paralyzed by the pain from the past. When we look back, we can see the hand of God at work through all of this. Sometimes in the middle of trauma, sometimes in the middle of things going a different way than you expected. It's hard to see how God is working all these things out, isn't it? Many times, don't we come to conclusions about who God is as a result of what we're experiencing right now? Don't we come to conclusions and say, well, this must be how God is feeling. This must be why God is doing this. This must be. How many of you have heard stories of people come, and maybe this has happened to you. People come to you in seasons of pain and they say, maybe you should just be doing this. Maybe you should just be doing this. Because God would alleviate your suffering if you would just do this. God would deliver you from your suffering if you would just do this. And then you think, well, maybe that is who God is. Maybe that's how, how he sees me right now. Maybe that's why he's doing this to me right now. And I think God's response to Job would cry out to us now, who are you to question me? We talked about this months ago, about questioning God in the midst of trials. And we said instead to let our trust rise. So if we'll let our trust rise in the midst of this pain that we've experienced, then I believe we'll be able to see how he's moving on our behalf. In Jeremiah 25, 11, Jeremiah prophesied that the captivity would last 70 years. Did you know that? They were told how long it would last by Jeremiah. He said, you're going to go into captivity and the captivity will last for 70 years. Well, don't you know that from this, Daniel 9, 1 and 2 shows how Daniel discovered what was written. While he was in the midst of the captivity, he discovered that Jeremiah previously had written that it would last 70 years. So God had foretold them, I know what's going to happen to you and I know how long it's going to last. He had even given them instructions, settle down there, build houses, plant vineyards. Here's my instructions for you during this time of pain and trauma. Here's how you're supposed to react. Here's what you're supposed to do. Well, Daniel discovered that timeline ahead of time. In Isaiah 45, we see Cyrus described 150 years before he existed. The one who would defeat Babylon and issue the decree to free them from exile. Do you know that God has already made known your deliverance even before your trauma happens? 
God has made known your deliverance even before your trauma happens. 150 years he calls Cyrus by name. Cyrus is able to read about not only what he would do to deliver the Israelites, the Jews, but also how he would defeat Babylon through the water gate. Separate story. Over the next century, God would raise up mighty leaders to rebuild his city and his culture. And he even used foreign kings who did not acknowledge him to foot the bill. So God raised up leaders to go back and to assist in the rebuilding of the altar, the foundations of the temple, the temple itself, and also the walls. And to reinstitute the culture and the Torah and bring about the culture that the Messiah would come through. Zerubbabel came back to rebuild the temple, Ezra to reinstitute the, reinstitute the law and the culture, and Nehemiah would return years later to rebuild the walls. So before the Romans built the roads, the gospel would travel on. Before the Greek language was used to communicate the gospel, the people of Jerusalem would establish the culture that the gospel would come through. And their intentionality in reestablishing the culture was largely because of the trauma that they had experienced in Babylon. And in response to that, they became even more intense about following the word. And that's the culture that Jesus came through. And so while we look back and we see that that was a devastating time, now looking back so many years later, we can see the Lord was using that and he was all over that. He was in control, but in the midst of it, they couldn't see it at times. That's why we read what we do in the Psalms. Because they couldn't see the way that it was going to unfold. If you are in here today and you've been defined by trauma and pain. And it has paralyzed you from doing the work that God has called you to do. This message is for you. This word is for you today. And we are going to do an altar call where you can take care of business today. Because we will not be a people who are paralyzed by pain from the past. But rather recognizing that God is sovereign over the things that have occurred in our lives. And although we may not know Cyrus's name in our situation, God knows the name of our deliverer. And we are marching forward until we see him use what was meant to destroy us for his glory and his kingdom. Worship team, could you come up and play for a little bit? Can we flip off the spotlights and just uh, start to prepare our hearts? For a moment, we are marching forward as one people, as one body right now. This is what we're doing. We're getting everything in order. Why? Because where we're going requires us to be unified. This means that we can't be defined by the things that happened in the past and paralyzed by those things. I'm not talking about pretending that they didn't happen. 
I'm not even saying that the people who did you wrong didn't do you wrong. Maybe they did. But now here you are in the aftermath with your post-traumatic stress and disorder. And God is saying, go back and rebuild the walls. We can't remain paralyzed anymore because it is shameful and disgraceful to do so. Does that feel harsh? I'm calling you better than you feel that you are right now. I'm saying that God has more for you now than what you're saying he has for you. Don't be mad at this message right now and don't disqualify me. What I'm saying is if you are paralyzed from what happened to you in the past and you know it, stand up right now. Come on, if you want to weep, weep. If you want to weep, weep. Because Nehemiah's response was to weep, mourn and wail and to fast and to pray. Just for just a second. There is a period of mourning that happens as we choose not to be defined and paralyzed by the pain of the past. And so mourn it right now. Mourn what's happened to you. Mourn what you experienced. Mourn it because we're, we're about to move on from this place. We're about to move forward from this place. So mourn it now. Mourn it now because it cannot define you any longer. Just open your hands before the Lord. Come on, the rest of the family in the room, just begin to pray for those around you because we're breaking forward together. We're moving forward together. Just begin to lift them up in prayer, just to be intentional right now. Jesus, we acknowledge the pain that's happened in the past. We acknowledge those who have.